Today what we're going to do is be looking at a story from Scripture that is probably well known to many of you, although <clears throat> there are some stories in the Bible that, that I find just personally that are just so tremendous, so inspiring, and so wonderful and, and that, that they're worth revisiting time and again. And all of us have our favorite stories, you know, maybe Daniel in the lion's den or or whatever particular story in the Bible that you perhaps learned as a child, but as you become older, you see more and more value and insight as you re-examine it again and again. And today's Bible study is going to run that direction. So if you'd open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter number 17, we'll get underway. 1 Kings, chapter number 17. Now, our story will be of an expository style, so we'll spend a lot of time in three chapters of 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. We will not read all of it, but we will not really need to read all of it, because in some respects you should be familiar with the story, and we'll just try to hit the highlights as we make our way forward. The story we're going to be looking at is what I'm simply calling the great drought of Elijah. Some people call this Elijah's great drought. Whether or not that's good to ascribe it to Elijah or, or to ascribe it to God, I'll let you be the judge. Probably we should ascribe it to God and not Elijah. But nonetheless, it's known as Elijah's great drought. And it's worth examining. Normally, I wouldn't take my inspiration for a Bible study from looking at the weather. But all of us have uh, probably experienced the unusual heat of uh, the Midwest the, the last uh, two couple of weeks and the very dry, increasing dry weather. And the, the large portion of the United States is under drought. And in fact, there's parts of Europe that are experiencing some heat and drought as well. And so from time to time, it might be good for us to just re-examine some of the issues involving the idea of, of drought and what that means, and probably one of the most notorious, most famous, most infamous, perhaps, of all droughts in Scripture is the one that we can look at here in the book of First Kings. So without further ado, let's jump into the story, and we'll look at the different characters that are involved in this story, and we'll see what we can learn about this drought, about this story, about God, about Elijah, about the courage of one man, and about the value of being able to, to look at this story and see what we can apply to our own lives and to the history and the life of our nation right now. So let's begin in 1 Kings chapter 17, and we'll start with simply reading verse 1. It says, Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. You might pause right there. This was quite a declaration for an individual man to make. For a man to confront a king and tell him, on my word, and on, apparently, my authority, a drought commences today. And it will not stop until I say, let there be rain. That's essentially what Elijah declared. 
Now, what do we know about this great man, Elijah? Well, as it turns out, we don't know a lot. From these chapters and the chapters that extend into the book of 2 Kings and other bits and pieces scattered throughout Scripture, we know a few things. Now, in terms of his personal life, all we know is that he was from the land of Gilead, which was a poor portion of the northern kingdom of Israel. We know that he came from a little village, uh, Tishbite, or perhaps Tishbite. Some people aren't even sure what that, if that's an ancestor or if that's the name of his village. We know from other bits and pieces that he, was, uh, he dressed in rough clothing. He was a hairy man. We know that, and we don't know if that means he had a long beard or long scraggly hair, or if it was hairy legs. We don't really know. It just refers to him as a hairy man who wears rough clothes, who spends a lot of time out in the wilderness. We do know from the text, the larger text of the stories about him, we know that he had a tendency to be a bit of an, a loner. He was a bit of an introvert, and a large portion of his career was spent uh, hiding. That is, nobody could find this great man. But once in a while, he came out. And when he did... He was a tremendously bold person when he came out from the desert lands where he spent much of his time. He was an incredibly bold man. So I don't know if he was truly an introvert by nature. Some scholars think he was a very quiet and introverted person. Others think, well, you know, so we really just don't know much about this man. We know a few wonderful and remarkable stories about his power. We know, and we won't read it today, but you know that he was taken up in a chariot of fire. So we know that he did not suffer death. We know that he appeared with Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration. That puts Moses and Elijah in an entirely different category of all Old Testament saints, does it not? Amen. So we know that Elijah is a remarkable man. And we know from bits and pieces in the New Testament that people expected Elijah in some fashion to possibly return and have a second chapter, a second life, shall we say, in a prophetic way. And that's scattered throughout the New Testament. So we know this was an incredibly remarkable man. We know that he had the certain characteristics and abilities to, in, to bring forward miraculous events that are hard to visualize. We won't read it today, but he ended his career in the book of 2 Kings by throwing fireballs at soldiers. If you'd like to read about that in the first couple of chapters of 2 Kings, soldiers tried to arrest him and he slammed fireballs at them and just, they just were toast, literally. So this is a man who is you know, really, really an unusual gentleman. But we, we, there's much we just don't know about him. We don't know, you know, if, I don't know if he was married. We don't know if he had children. We don't know where his parents came. We don't know if he was rich or poor, tall or short. He was hairy. <laughs> so we really don't know as much as we would like. But we know some things about these wonderful episodes. And we know that he was a tremendous man of God, tremendous man of great faith and confidence, and yet there are episodes and portions of his life where his confidence failed him. So let's, let's go a little further into this story now. 
I've told you a little about Elijah, what I, little I know, what little as can be known. We know also that most of his career, not all of it, most of his career was connected with the reign of a king named Ahab. Now we know a little bit, quite a bit about Ahab. We know that Ahab reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel. This would have been the 9th century B.C. We know that Ahab was a rather um, affluent and wealthy king. Israel at that time, the northern kingdom, was experiencing an a economic period of strength. We know that Ahab's father, his name was Omri, and his father was powerful and wealthy. So we know that Ahab ruled Israel during a period, the northern kingdom, a period of great affluence and power and influence. We know that Ahab had a very wicked wife, Jezebel. She's notorious. We know that Jezebel had such a strong and dominant dynamic personality that she at times overwhelmed her husband. And I dare say that he might have even been afraid of his own wife. Jezebel was not native to the land of Israel. Ahab was. He was an Israelite. But Jezebel was not. She was uh, from a Canaanite city along the coastline. And it is evident that she was a non-Israelite lady. Uh, it is evident that she was very fierce in her advocacy for the false religion of Baal. And the god of Baal, B-A-A-L, you are, probably remember Baal. He was a popular deity in that part of the world in that century. He was a storm god, god of the clouds, god of lightning and thunder and so forth and so on, god of the rain, the storm god, Baal. So he was a popular deity, and Ahab and Jezebel were very pleased to push and advocate for the worship of Baal, and they didn't have too much trouble because the children of Israel in the northern kingdom seemed to be very much inclined to run after Baal and to forget Jehovah. So those are some of the primary personalities that are involved. So we find then, apparently out of nowhere, God sends Elijah, inspires Elijah, and Elijah declares in the name of Jehovah that there will be no rain upon the earth. All right. So what does that mean? Well, this was, we can say, was a direct insult to Baal. He was the storm god. He was the god of rain. And to say that Jehovah could stop the rain and Baal could not provide the rain was, in a sense, really a direct challenge to the popularity and the authority and the, and the veracity of Baal. Well, we know from later readings in these chapters, we know that when Elijah made this declaration, the response of Ahab and Jezebel was to intensify their persecution upon all who might still be faithful to Jehovah. Their immediate response was to arrest and apparently attempt to execute anybody in the land who was of any leadership, uh, that is, any prophets of God, any, any, uh, anybody that, that was still publicly advocating in favor of the worship of Jehovah now had a target on them. And they went after all of these faithful people of God with great vigor and, and enthusiasm. And thus we find, if we go to verse 2 and 3, that Elijah 
disappeared. He simply disappeared. Now, you may know the story well. The first place he went is described in the first several verses of chapter number 17. If you'd like to read verses 2 through 7, we find that Elijah was sent to live by a particular little creek, a brook, a stream. And God sent him to a particular stream named Cherith, a brook there. And he said, I want you to just live by this little creek and I'm going to provide for you in a miraculous way. And indeed, this is the famous story of the ravens. The ravens brought bread and flesh, that is meat, to Elijah. And he stayed there for a period of time. It doesn't really tell us how long he stayed there, but it does tell us that eventually the brook dried up and Elijah had to move on. Well, he then went, Elijah left that little brook, which was in the land of Israel, and he left the land of Israel. Now, if you keep reading in 1 Kings 17, in verse 9 it says, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and I'm going to introduce you to a special widow woman. So off Elijah goes. He's still essentially hiding. Now he has left the jurisdiction of Israel and is now living in a, essentially a, 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 a non-Israelite part of the world along the coastline, what's now the Mediterranean Sea. So the drought is still going, of course. And really the drought extends apparently over the entire region. The drought did not stop at the border of Israel. It apparently was a regional drought. And in that particular village where he met this widow woman, she was also suffering from the effects of the drought. If you'd like to keep on reading, you may know the story. He's introduced to the widow lady, and he asks the widow lady for a drink of water. She says, fine, she brings him a drink of water. That might have been a little difficult, but they had water to drink. And then he says, could you make me something to eat? And you remember her response. She says, well, I'd like to be generous, but I don't mean to be, you know, un inhospitable, but I've only got enough food left for one final meal for me and my little son. And I'm going to go make that. I've got a little bit of grain left, a little meal in the bottom of my flour barrel, and I've got enough for me and my little son. I'm going to go make my, ourselves a couple little cakes, a couple little patties, couple little tortillas or whatever it was they were eating, a couple little small loaves of bread. We're going to eat it, and then I guess we'll die. And Elijah says, take a chance, madam. Give me a bite of food and see what good things might happen. So she does. And then you know the rest of the story, right? Elijah says, hey, look, you don't need to worry. I'm going to stay with you. And you're not going to run out of meal, and you're not going to run out of oil as long as I am with you. And as long as this drought continues, you are secure. You and your boy, you're not going to run out of food. So that's where Elijah now spends quite a bit of time, with this widowed lady in a different country nearby. And then if we keep reading in chapter 17, there's yet another miracle. So remember, the first miracle was the ravens. That, we'll call that kind of a small miracle. The second miracle is a step up. This is a, a little bit better miracle. This one is a, a barrel of, of flour that never ends. The never-ending barrel of flour. A cornucopia of grain. The third miracle, though, comes later in chapter 17. Do you remember that one? The little boy falls sick. 
and he dies. It tells us about that in chapter 17. You might scan your eyes down over those verses that describe the ailment of the, the little boy falling sick. Verse 17, I'm in 1 Kings 17, 17. It came to pass after these things, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And we keep on reading from the context. We certainly get the impression that he died. Doesn't tell us what he was sick with or what he died from. The lady is a bit upset, understandably, and she says, well, what good has it been for you to be here with your little small miracle of keeping us alive with the flower if my son died? So he implores God in heaven, and as you'll read on down, you'll perceive that God answered his prayer. And in verse 22, it says, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, the soul of the child came unto him again, and he revived he came back to life. And Elijah took the child, brought him out of the chamber, and delivered him unto his mother. And the woman responds in verse 24, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in thy mouth. Boy, she's a true believer now. Boy, she really thinks there's something special about this fellow at this point. Now it's interesting, as the drought is unfolding, and Elijah is nowhere to be found, that is, he's, he's been hiding out in a very obscure areas now. First by the creek and now with this widow woman in a different country. There's something is happening, though, with these three miracles. The first miracle was a very modest one. The ravens feeding him. In fact, if you were a skeptic of Scripture, you could say, well, that wasn't even a miracle at all. The birds were just coming by and, you know, he just, they maybe landed and he just picked up what they left behind or something. If you were a, a real skeptic of Scripture, that's one of those small miracles you could, you could perhaps try to explain away. The second miracle is a little harder to explain away. That was truly a miracle, a never-ending cornucopia of flour and oil available. But the third miracle... Now that one is pretty dramatic, raising someone from the dead. We see that what's happening is Elijah, in hiding, his reputation is being built. Now, the first miracle, maybe no one hardly knew about. The second miracle would have been noticed by the people in her little village. Why is this lady doing so well? We're all scrounging and starving to death, and she looks pretty fat and fleshy, and so does her little boy. They have plenty to eat in that household. Oh, that gentleman there has been taking care of them, and he's got something special going on. The third miracle is one that probably would not have been kept a secret. Do you think you would have kept that as a secret? Do you think that would have been a secret? Do you think that, or do you think that would have been published abroad across the town and the countryside and from one town to the next? Do you think that that would have been published abroad? You bet it would have been. There is nothing more dramatic than bringing someone back to life who was dead. By this time, Elijah's reputation was growing and had grown probably very large as a miracle worker, a great miracle worker. And it's at this point that Elijah emerges and goes back to see Ahab. So let's pick up our story and get back to the business about the drought. The text in 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah now gets ready to confront King Ahab, 
The text here in this book, in this chapter, does not tell us how long. In fact, if we read verse 1 of chapter 18, it says, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that's all it tells us, saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab, and there was a sore famine in Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of, Ahab, uh, northern kingdom of Israel. It was the great city that Ahab ruled from. It was not the palace city. The palace city that Ahab lived in was near Samaria. It was a, little, it was a city called Jezreel, where there was a great and expansive palace for this wealthy and powerful king. But the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria. And the famine was great. Now this text tells us that it was the third year. We know from two other places in Scripture, though, in the New Testament, that the famine was, had commenced was exactly three and one-half years. Three years and six months the famine had been underway. In a gospel, in the book of James, confirmed that. So that's how long the drought was going on. Now I want you to pause and stop and think for a moment about a drought that lasts three and one-half years. It might be worthwhile for us to, to, to examine that and to think a little bit about what that might mean. Well, there's a first clue that we can derive from Scripture about the desperation of this drought. If we keep reading in chapter number 18, the text introduces us to another person, a gentleman named Obadiah. Now this Obadiah is not the prophet Obadiah, of which there's a small book in the Bible. This is a different Obadiah. Turns out, if we read, this Obadiah was a servant of King Ahab. And he was a secret agent. He was a man who was faithful to Jehovah. And unbeknownst to his master, King Ahab, he had been hiding for all this time. 150 prophets of God, prophets of Jehovah, in a cave, and had been feeding them. Obadiah evidently was a wealthy nobleman who worked for King Ahab. And so he had some resources that most folks just didn't have. And he'd been keeping these prophets alive all these three and a half years. But the, the, the drought had reached a point where all livestock was disappearing. Now it tells us that when Elijah came out of his hiding to go and see Ahab, that he actually, instead of meeting Ahab, he ran into Obadiah. And it turns out Obadiah had been given a mission. King Ahab had divided all the remaining horses that they had. That's what royal folks in those days had, didn't they? They were live, the kind of livestock that kings had were horses. And he was trying to keep his horses and his cavalry force from disappearing. And they had divided the land into two parts. And Ahab had taken some of them, some of this livestock in one direction. Obadiah had taken some of the livestock in the other direction, attempting to find a little bit of forage, a little bit of grass somewhere. Somewhere there must be a little bit of grass so we can save some of these animals. Well, while they're on this desperate search to keep alive the royal horses, 
That's when Ahab meets Obadiah. Excuse me, that's when Elijah meets Obadiah. He says, Obadiah, go tell Ahab I'm ready to talk to him. Obadiah says, not me. I don't want to go there. Don't you know that Ahab is trying to kill you? Well, yeah, of course. Of course I know he's trying to kill me. Don't you know that Ahab and Jezebel have been scouring the land for years trying to find you? Don't you even know that they've actually gone to other countries searching for you, trying to extend their reach beyond, thinking, well, maybe he ran to this country or that nearby country? So it describes all of this, extent, this extensive search that had been going on for Elijah. So Obadiah doesn't really want to confront him. Doesn't want to get involved. He's like, don't get me involved. <laughs> I'm afraid to. Ahab will get mad. He'll say, where is this guy? He'll kill me because, I, I mean, how do I know you're not going to run away again as soon as I turn my back? So anyway, Obadiah doesn't want to get involved. To make a long story short, though, Ahab persuades Obadiah to go ahead and do this. And Obadiah brings, uh, and, uh, they, they, they make their confrontation. So Ahab then is ready to have a direct conversation with King Ahab. But before that, we need to look at this business about the drought in three and a half years. What a three and a half year drought means. In fact, what does a drought mean? Now, one of the things that is remarkable about this story, I see many parallels between the northern kingdom of Israel and our nation. The United States of America and the northern kingdom of Israel have many remarkable parallels that make it worth our reflection. Both countries, at this point in time, both countries were rather affluent. And the northern kingdom of Israel was a prosperous and powerful country. It had a relatively wealthy population, a large population, particularly in contrast to their cousins, the kingdom of Judah. Little Judah was a rather poor country, despite the fact that they had the wonderful great city of Jerusalem. Judah was a smaller country, relatively poor. Israel, the ten-tribed Israel country, the northern kingdom, had a larger population. It had the best land. It was affluent. It was wealthy. It was powerful. It was also not faithful to God, particularly at all. They'd had a string of different kings and dynasties. But at this moment in time, this particular country, the northern kingdom, was suffering this dramatic, dramatic drought. And so their wealth was slipping away from them. They were running out of their resources. You ran it, run out of your food and your animals, and then you start cashing in your money and your resources, and you bring food from abroad and so forth and so on, all that can be done. But it was very difficult. And the drought had reached a point of great desperation. Now, people use the word drought, and we use the word uh, uh, in, in, in a way that gets kind of tossed around, and we probably really need to kind of define what that means. It turns out that if you choose to look it up, there's more than one kind of drought. <laughs> and that gets a little befuddling. But let's not go down that road. Let me just take a moment, though, and talk to you about some of the sundry different causes of droughts. Because right now, the United States has experienced our own drought. Now, the drought here in the Midwest is somewhat dramatic. It's somewhat worrisome. The drought in the southwest United States, in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, is very grievous. Many of you have heard about the dropping of Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and the Rio Grande River is essentially run dry, and, and uh, West Texas, they're, they're dumping cattle. So there's... A, there's it's worse in other areas. 
But what does this mean, and what causes droughts? What, really, what, what, does that, what does that mean? Well, there's really four different primary causes of droughts. Number one is you have the most obvious. That is a deficiency of precipitation. Now, how do you know if you're having not enough rain? How do you know if that qualifies for a drought? Well, here in Missouri, I'm going to digress for a moment as we talk about what a drought means. Here in Missouri, we receive annually about 40 inches of rain a year. Now, if we, all, if we go an entire year and we only get 20 inches of rain, that is a significant drought for the Midwest part. That, for Missouri, that's a serious drought, is it not? That would be tough. That would be really tough on the folks here in Missouri. However, if you lived in the plains of western Kansas or eastern Colorado, 20 inches of rain, that's a pretty good year. They would not call that a drought. Where my mother grew up in eastern Montana on the northern plains, 20 inches of rain was a wet year. They would not call that a drought. They'd be celebration. So if you go to western Kansas, let's say, and they get... 15 or 20 inches of rain annually on average. Well, what does that mean if you lived in a different location? Well, if you lived in Death Valley, that would be, that's a once in a thousand year type year. It's so wet, where the annual precipitation is probably one or two inches a year. So it really depends. It depends on what is normal for your region. So droughts are local. All droughts are essentially local events. They have to be viewed locally. So the first one, a deficiency of rain, you have to find, you have to determine what is normal. Now that's not easy to do though, actually, because you say, well, what's our 10-year average? Or maybe it should be a 20-year average, or maybe it should be a 100-year average. It turns out the, the question of what's normal in your area is a little harder to answer. But let me move on. So precipitation deficiency is one cause of drought. Of course, there's another type, and this is particularly prone to the land of Israel. And this is what you might say is an extension of a normal dry season. Now, just a bit of geography for you. The land of Israel is not a flat place. I haven't been there. I hope to go there, but I've read a lot about it. It's not a flat country. It's lots of hills and mountains and valleys. It's a relatively small country, but it's not very flat. And so the precipitation dramatic, dramatically varies from one place to another. Maybe 10 miles away is dramatically different because of the elevation factor. And so in the land of Israel, they have what they call a Mediterranean climate. Have you heard of that? It means you have a seasonal pattern. The winters are rather rainy, wet, cool, maybe even a little snow. Lots of rain, though. The summers are always long and hot. Always long and hot. It's always dry in the summer. Always dry in the summer. You may, it's nothing at all in the land of Israel to go three months without any rain. For them, that's normal. The problem is if you go ten months without rain. The problem comes in the winter. If you don't get the winter rains, the ponds don't fill, the aquifers don't recharge, the wells that you count on to get you through the long, hot summer, they don't recharge. That's when you run into trouble. Nobody's surprised if it doesn't rain for two or three months in the long, hot summer in a Mediterranean climate. So that's the second. So the second type of drought is when you have this normal, wet, dry season 
and the wet season doesn't come. And you have this extended then period of dry weather. The third type of drought, you've heard of this one. I don't know if anybody knew anything about it then, but we now know that the great oceans have huge oscillations that set in motion huge cycles of wet and dry. Now, in this country, you hear about it because this particular one affects us somewhat from time to time. That's El Nino, right? And that goes out into the Pacific Ocean. And you've got this giant oscillation of Pacific Ocean patterns that push rain towards South America, or maybe it pushes rain up towards Central America, or maybe it pushes rain up toward North America. And it all depends on what's happening in the South Pacific. The same thing happens in the Indian Ocean, and to a smaller degree, the same thing happens in the Mediterranean Sea, which is a pretty large body of water, and the South Atlantic. So you have all these other larger patterns, and those can get messed up, and nobody seems to know why. All right, well, and of course, then you have, you heard this, climate change. Climate change. <clears throat> now, I don't want to digress too far. Climate change is real. Now, when I say climate change is real, I could take you back in history hundreds of years, and we could talk about how once upon a time, Greenland, when the Vikings settled there, was much milder. And that's why they settled and stayed. It wasn't too bad. And then after about 300 years, it got pretty cold and frozen. And that's when they abandoned the colony in Greenland. They say, we're out of here. There's no green grass growing anymore. The glaciers have pushed all the way down to the coastline, and we better get out well before we all starve to death. And many of them did. That's another story. So you, have, you do have climate change as the centuries go by. Now, there is a philosophical question, which is also bleeds over into geography and science and, all, and theology, and that's a question of this that, that I hope you have an answer for. To what extent are these drought factors in the hands of God? To what extent are these in the hands of God? No, I would say this is essentially all completely in the hands of God. It is completely in the hands of God. That is to say, the first precipitation deficiency, like we are experiencing right now here in Missouri in the month of July, the extension of a normal dry season, El Nino, or climate change, I say, I argue, all of those are a God thing. That's all a God thing. All a God thing. All of that is in the hands of God. Now, I base that on theology. I base that on my theological worldview. That's my opinion. Based on my theological opinion and my perspective that I think is biblically accurate, that God is sovereign. Now, the word sovereign means God is all-powerful. That's what it means. So you have to ask yourself, do you believe that God is all-powerful? Or do you believe that God is Somewhat powerful, moderately powerful, reasonably powerful, but not all powerful. Do you believe that God has control over climate change? Or does man have control over climate change? Does God have control over the southern Pacific oscillation, El Nino? Or does man have control over the southern Pacific oscillation? Well, I believe God does. Now, if that's your theological premise, 
if that's your biblical premise, if that's where you begin, you say that God is all-powerful, then that's going to dictate where you end. And that's going to tell you that people who say, well, you know, God's pretty powerful, but, but man can do a lot too. You know, man, man can do a lot too. Man's pretty powerful. Man's pretty smart. Man can manipulate the weather. Human beings can manipulate the weather. To that I have to say no. And I don't really have to spend a lot of time reading about all of the various scientific factors to say that scientific case is not going to hold up under scrutiny. And I know it's not going to hold up under scrutiny because if I have to choose between the opinion of a scientist and the opinion of Scripture, it's an easy call for me. Scripture is authoritative, and the opinion of scientists, as we have now seen at the end of the pandemic, they come and go with political winds of change. So I don't need to spend a great deal of time on this particular point, but I think it's worthy of you spending time on, because this also dictates how you respond, not only on these large, huge pictures in the world, but how you respond about God's sovereignty in your life. You see, if you believe that God is sovereign over all the world, which includes all of the climate and the weather, then you're going to believe that God is sovereign in my life. God has a hand in my life, and he can see much further than I do. And even the things that happen that I don't understand, I can trust that God is prevailing. So these are kind of important philosophical questions that you've got to work your way through. And so, this is kind of an important digression. Now, real quick, just one or two more thoughts on droughts. Uh, there are factors that humans do possess that can worsen a drought. That is, m- mankind can make things worse. There's a real good example in, in the Western Plains in the 1920s. We spent a lot of time plowing up land that shouldn't have been plowed up. We planted wheat. That made the dry season of the 1930s much worse than it would have been. In the 1920s, they were told... Rain follows the plow. <laughs> Land speculators said rain follows the plow. If you plow up your fields, the rain will follow it. They believed that man could control the weather. Rain follows the plow. They're quite serious. You just go look that up. Google that up in history. I'm not making this up. And so the land speculators persuaded people to go to the Great Plains For about 10 or 15 years, the price of wheat was high. It was felt that they could make a killing on wheat by plowing up all of the Great Plains. And it worked for three or four or five years. And then came the dry spell. The dry season. The 1930s arrived. And were much worse. And that brought about the Dust Bowl, of which all of us know quite a bit about. But man made it worse. Because now he didn't have the soil. The soil wasn't held in place by the sod of the Great Plains. And eventually, people figured out, we've got to put much of that back into grass, which is where it should have remained. There's other things that man can do. We can mismanage our limited water resources. A lot of people think that's what's happening in the American Southwest now, with the great rivers like the Colorado and the Rio Grande. But that's another debate. 
So I don't believe, however, I just want to just go on record as a final thought here before we get back to Scripture. I don't believe in man-made climate change. I don't believe that human or animal emission of CO2 or methane are making one whit of a difference. And so I don't think you need to worry about that. So I'm not about to get rid of my cows because they pass gas in the pasture. <coughs> and so forth. Now, let's return to the Bible and get back to the high point of this story. Now, you'll recall what happens next as we go through 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah and Ahab have a conversation. And Elijah comes to Ahab. I'm going to read in verse 17. In 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he who troubles Israel? <laughs> there you are. You're the guy who started all this thing. This giant drought, three and a half years. You're the one. Are you the one that's given us all this trouble? And Elijah puts it back on him. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and has followed Balaam. You decided you wanted to follow the storm god instead of Jehovah. And then he challenged him. He says, gather all your prophets of Baal and meet me at Mount Carmel. And so they did. Ahab agreed. We find in verse 20 that Ahab gathered the prophets of Baal that were under his domain and jurisdiction. And they met Elijah. And here comes this tremendous confrontation now. Now Mount Carmel, geographically, is immediately adjacent to the sea. The large sea known as the Mediterranean. It's right smack on the coast. Pretty prominent, large hill. Probably bigger than Blue Mountain. Pretty, very prominent uh, region. Turns out that Mount Carmel was kind of special to the prophets of Baal. Because you've probably heard in the Old Testament the, the phrase, high places, haven't you? Turns out that Baal, the god of the storms, they have most of their sacred spots on hilltops. Hilltops, particularly hilltops that have timber on them. The, the high places in the groves. And that's where Mount Carmel was. Mount Carmel was a high place where there was timber, a big hill, and this is essentially kind of like if you had a basketball game and you have two teams that are playing, one has a home court advantage. In this case, Baal had a home court advantage. This was their hill. This was, this was their, one of their great high places. So Elijah says, meet me on Mount Carmel. And you probably recall the story, don't you? It tells us in wonderful language how it all unfolds. Elijah confronts Ahab and the prophets and all the people that are gathered there. This was a public spectacle. There were many, many people there. We don't know from Scripture how many people gathered to watch this event. But you get the impression that there were, must have been probably thousands of people who gathered. And so Elijah makes this tremendous confrontation, a public confrontation. And he says to Ahab, and he says to all of the people, verse 21, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, 
Then follow him. And all the people answered not a word. They didn't know what to say. And one of the things they weren't used to was this type of courage, this type of boldness. Elijah, whatever his shortcomings may have been, he had within him this incredible boldness and courage that is rare, exceedingly rare gift that God gives unto men. And when he said, right there, all of you people listen. There's 450 prophets of Baal, and there's one prophet of Jehovah, me. 450 to 1. Let's have a game. Let's see who's really God. Well, you know how the story goes, right? They start in the morning. He challenges them to call down fire from heaven. He says, go ahead. Build your own altar. So they did. Prophets of Baal, they had an altar there. They put wood. They killed a, a, an ox. They put the animal's flesh on the wood. And the prophets of Baal called all day long on Baal to bring down fire from heaven. And we could read about that. You probably remember the story. It says in verse 26, They took the bullock which was given them, they dressed it, they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is on a journey, or peradventure he's sleeping and needs to be wakened up. Cry louder, your god's asleep. Maybe he's busy. Who knows what he's doing? Cry louder. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the manner with knives and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And it came to pass when midday was passed and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer nor any that regarded. So quite literally they spent all day long. Crying, leaping, cutting themselves, calling out to Baal, 450 of them, dancing and prancing around their altar on the top of Mount Carmel, a place they were familiar with. Nothing. But you know how the story goes, right? You know what happens next. Elijah <clears throat> says, all right, my turn now. I've given you all day. You're probably exhausted. Elijah says, all right, my turn. So it says he reassembled an altar. He had to make a new altar now. So he gathers some stones. <clears throat> says in verse 30, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. That word Lord, of course, is Jehovah, the Tetragrammaton. And Elijah took the number of stones. I'm in verse 31 of 1 Kings 18. Elijah took the stones according to the number of the tribes, the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of Jehovah, in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bullock in pieces, laid him on the altar. And then he said, remember what comes next? You ought to, if you know your Bible stories as a child, 
That's why your children need to know their Bible stories. He says, bring water. Four barrels of water. Pour it on everything. And then he said, that's not enough. Bring four more barrels. Then he said, that's not enough. Bring four more barrels. Twelve barrels of water. Saturating everything and filling the trench. Of course, 12 is significant, right? <clears throat> Bear in mind that there's a three and a half year drought. Everything would have been utterly bone dry. Imagine the wood that was put under the altar. Three and a half years of wood drying. This was dry wood. Elijah wanted to be sure. He wanted to be certain that there was no mistaking that there was somehow a little spark that maybe he, nobody had noticed. He didn't want them to think that he had any trickery, that the wood that was so dry that it would catch on fire quite easily, that somehow he didn't have a little, you know, a little, little spark that nobody noticed. No shenanigans like that. Elijah wanted to be absolutely certain that when this fire came down, <laughs> that it was from God. And it wasn't the hand of man. Well, we know how it goes. <clears throat> and it came to pass, in verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that I am thy servant, and I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me now, O Lord. Hear that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire, I'm in verse 38, one of the most dramatic verses in this portion of Scripture. It says, The fire of the Lord fell, consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. Let that picture in your mind just, just imagine that. Imagine that kind of a fire that fell. Nothing was left. Not only was the wood gone and the oxen was gone and the water was gone, but the stones were burned up. What kind of a fire must that have been? Huh, I don't know. But it was, that's in, just, just, just think on that for a moment and you have to say, wow, what a God. Well, it made an impression on the people, would it not? How could it have not? <clears throat> and when all the people saw it, <clears throat> they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Literally, if we went into the Hebrew, that would be something like, Jehovah, He is Elohim. Jehovah, He is Elohim. Elohim meaning God or deity. Jehovah is the only God. The one, true, single, only God. The people were compelled to acknowledge this. And so strong was their compulsion, and so strong was the persuasion. And even Ahab, when you read the entire text, you get the impression that he was convinced as well. Because the next thing that happened is Elijah said, let's go kill all the 450 prophets of Baal. And nobody got in the way. Ahab didn't try to stop him. The people didn't try to stop him. So they took him off to a nearby stream, 
and the 450 prophets of Baal were executed that day on the spot. Well, what happens next? Well, Elijah says, okay, Ahab, you wanted the, you wanted the drought to end? The drought's ending. He says, time for you to head back home. Now you get and you go back to Jezreel to your palace. Because there's a big rain coming. And we can read about the details, but we won't take the time. Time is short. He said, there's a big rain coming. And by golly, there was a big rain coming. A big rain came. And it came right away. A huge storm came up. Rain fell. Ahab went back to the palace to report to Jezebel. And we come to the next portion of this great story. Now, we don't have as much time to explore this in chapter 19 that I would like to. But before we close out, we need to touch base with a few things out of chapter 19. I'll let you look at this on your own, but let me summarize if I may. Jezebel does not respond like Ahab. Jezebel says, on my honor, I'm going to have this man killed. Jezebel is angry beyond all reason. And she puts out a death warrant on Elijah's head. Now you might think that Elijah, after such a dramatic miracle, would be not very worried. After all that, why should he be afraid of a a woman? Apparently he was. It doesn't really exactly say that he was afraid, but it tells us that Elijah fled the country again. He fled. This time he headed south to a little town called Beersheba. Perhaps you've heard of it. Beersheba is out of the kingdom of Israel, and it is the most distant southernmost town in the kingdom of Judah. Far away, he believed, out of the jurisdiction of Jezebel, beyond the reach of her secret agents where they could capture him. He reaches, Jeze- he reaches Beersheba, out of the reach of Jezebel. And the scripture says he sat down under a juniper tree. Now, you know what a little bit of juniper looks like, probably. It's a little tree that does well in dry, dry country. So basically, he's fled now to the desert. And he sits down under a juniper tree, and you know what he says to himself? You know what he says? Poor Elijah. <laughs> Poor Elijah, after such a grand moment... This maybe gives us a little insight into his personality even. Even going from one incredibly bold moment in time to this moment. In 1 Kings 19, he says, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Apparently, he entered into a time of great and deep discouragement. He was deflated. After all of the wonderful and tremendous positives that had happened, he was greatly deflated, and he wanted to die. Well, there's a nice little story about an angelic visit. An angel visits, provides a little food. It says, Elijah, wake up. He has a nice rest. And he says, Elijah, I've got to send you somewhere. I want you to go down to Mount Horeb. So Elijah wakes up and does. So the next thing we find in this chapter is he goes to Mount Horeb, and there in Mount Horeb, he has a confrontation with Jehovah. 
Now, in case you don't know this, Mount Horeb, scholars believe, is the exact same as Mount Sinai. Two names for the same place. As far as we know, as far as I know, I think I'm correct in saying that there's only two men who went to the top of Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. Moses and now Elijah. And this chapter describes this conversation that God has with Elijah when he gets to the top of Mount Horeb. Now the highlight of this and the significance of this conversation is that Elijah is basically arrived here after a 40 days hike through the desert. It takes him 40 days to hike out to Mount Horeb. And Elijah gets there at the top of the mountain. And he says, God, I've been faithful to you, but I'm done. I, I am I'm wiped out. I've got nothing left. <laughs> and in fact, he says it twice. In verse 10, he's not feeling very good, despite all the wonderful things that happened in the previous chapter. In verse 10, Elijah says to God when he gets down to Mount Horeb, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord God. The children of Israel now, they have forsaken thy covenant. They've thrown down thine altars. They've slain your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. I am the only one. But what happened to all the others? What happened to the 150 prophets that Obadiah had hidden? We just had met in the previous chapter. What happened to all the people who were very happy to kill all the 450 prophets of Baal? What happened to all of them? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us. But apparently their, the positive impression that had been made at the top of Mount Carmel must have been short-lived. Because he's deeply discouraged. Well, other little things happen at the top of Mount Horeb, but in verse 14, Elijah repeats, repeats it again. He says, I'm the only one left. I'm it. I am the only one. And then God speaks. Now, we're going to close with a couple of verses in chapter 19. We'll see if we can make a few applications. In verse 15, God said unto him now, this is at the top of Mount Horeb. God says, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Remember that name for a moment, Hazael. I want you to go to Syria, the country of Syria, and I want you to appoint Hazael to be the king of the Syrian kingdom. And then verse 16. I've got a second task for you, Elijah. I want you to go anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. Jehu. Hmm. Remember the name Jehu. And third, I want you to go and anoint Elisha to be prophet in your room. By your room, that means in your spot, in your office, in your job. Elijah, I'm putting you into retirement soon, but not quite yet. You have three men you have to go meet. Now, there's a significance to all three. Elisha, of course, all of you have heard of Elisha, I hope. He does take over in the spot, in the job, in the task that Elijah had carried on for these sundry years. So he becomes Elijah's replacement. But who is 
Hazael. Well, as it turns out, Hazael is the one that God designated to punish the Israelites and to bring punishment upon Ahab and his dynasty, wicked King Ahab. Who is Jehu? Jehu is the man that God raises up to be the next king in the northern kingdom of Israel and to literally exterminate the entire house of Ahab. And that's why God says in verse 17 of chapter 19, And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. These three men, one a foreign king, one the new king of Israel, and one who is a great prophet, will destroy the house, the dynasty, and all of the descendants of Ahab and Jezebel. Elijah, you're going to win. You're going to win. You're on the winning side. And I'm not quite done with you. Now, what does all of this mean? And what might this mean for us and for our circumstances? Well, number one, if I could just make a quick comment about drought. Drought is one of the great mechanisms that God has to gauge our responses. If you fall into either the conservative or the liberals, the extreme conservatives who believe that the weather is manipulated by the Russians or by Harp, then what you're saying is that God does not have the tool of a drought to gauge the responses of his people. Or if you are join those who say that climate change is all about man's activities, then you also say God does not have the ability to use the drought. The drought's not from God. The drought's not from God. It's from those that 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 big machine in Alaska that sends those radio waves up into the atmosphere that the Russians are running or somebody else is running. The drought's not from God. It's from CO2 emissions. Well, I have to assert from my understanding of theology and scripture that both positions are wrong. Drought is from God. Only God controls the weather. Only God has that kind of power. And when man arrogates himself... To say that we can do it. It's a challenge to God's sovereignty and authority. And it's wrong. It's theologically wrong. It's philosophically wrong. It's biblically wrong. I think it's historically wrong. And I think in the end it's scientifically wrong. There's a couple other important messages though. I passed over one verse. You know, there's one other verse in, verse in chapter 19 I must mention. There's something else that Jehovah told Elijah at the top of Mount Horeb. He said, you're not the only one. Do you remember this verse? I have me 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Hallelujah. You are not alone, Elijah. You might feel alone, but you are not. 
In this you are mistaken. Now that's an important message for you and I to remember when we feel alone. We are probably, almost surely, not alone in our faithfulness to God. We are not alone. There are more true followers of God than we imagine. There's something else. The judgment that God brought upon the northern kingdom of Israel did not come in the lifetime of Ahab or his son or any of the following generation. In fact, the ultimate destruction of Israel, this land that had forsaken God, did not come for another 150 years. Why did it take God so long? Why did it take God so long to bring punishment upon the northern kingdom of Israel? I think there's two thoughts that I want to leave you with on that point. Number one, Ahab was wicked, and much of the nation was wicked with him, but not all. God is smart enough to distinguish between a wicked government and the people. The people and the government are not the same. And I think God's intelligent enough to know the difference. And I think he's got enough skill in his toolbox to bring judgments that are discriminatory enough to distinguish between the government and the people. The government of Israel collapsed. Ahab's house was destroyed to the ground. But the people of Israel carried on. God can distinguish between the government of a nation and the people of a nation. We need to remember that. Secondly, God always can distinguish within the people of a nation between those who are righteous and those who are not. The people of a nation can be divided into those who are faithless and a faithful remnant. That's another important distinction that God is capable of making. Just as you are capable in your own family with a multiplicity of children to say, well, these five have been well behaved and these two rascals need a good spanking. Or vice versa. All of you have missed up and are all grounded for the next week, except for you. You are free to go. Have fun. God is at least as capable as a good parent in distinguishing those of his children that are faithful and those that are faithless. Don't forget that. Over and over again, God shows great compassion to a group based on the faithfulness of a remnant. The faithfulness of a remnant is not overlooked with God. Remember in Sodom, God would have spared that city. He only asked for a remnant of how many? Ten. He was willing to spare the entire city for a faithful remnant of ten. And only after that, when he couldn't even come up with ten, Sodom was judged. No, I don't know what that means about America. But if this land has a remnant, your job is to do your best to be a part of that remnant and be faithful to God and let God have the wisdom to make his distinctions when he decides it's time for judgment whether that be tomorrow or 150 years from now. It's not for us to fuss about the timeline. Our job is to be faithful. 
And that's hard enough. That's enough to keep us busy. Finally, the courage of one man can make a difference. Now, I don't know if there is an Elijah in our land. I don't know if God has someone in the wilderness of, of America who might pop up out of the woodwork the way Elijah did that has that kind of unbelievable devotion to God, confidence, charisma, and leadership to do something like Elijah did. I'm not really expecting it. But one person can make a difference. One bold man can make a difference. So be encouraged that courage and dedication on your part will not be overlooked by God. The future of this land is in God's hands. Wicked rulers will one day receive their just reward. Our duty and our obligation is to be faithful to God and respond to His judgments in a way that's pleasing to Him with a soft heart and a commitment to His desires. Thank you for your time today. May God bless you all.